Hello and welcome to the Five By, your bi-weekly roundup of delicious board game bursts. In this episode, Ruth gets on a spaceship and among the stars, Sarah gets on the bus and on tour, Meeple Lady gets on a boat in La Havre, Laura gets into city planning in Sprawlopolis, and I get on a boat but a different boat than the boat that Meeple Lady was on in the river. Hello Five By listeners, it's Ruth here talking about my favorite card drafting game. That would be 2012's Among the Stars, designed by Vangelis Bagartarkis. Set in a post-war galaxy, the game tasks players with building the most impressive space station over four years, as representatives of various alien races that have come together to rebuild. During the game, players create their space station from square cards that represent different types of rooms, everything from entertainment areas and living quarters to security installations. These cards are obtained through drafting. That is, on each turn, a player will select a card from their hand before passing the rest of the cards they didn't choose to the next player, in turn receiving someone else's discards to use on their next turn. In Among the Stars, the player actually has three choices of what to do with the card they select. They can pay for it and add it to their space station, they can discard the card and instead pay to add a new power reactor to their station, or they can simply discard the card to take three credits for use on future turns. Cards added to their station come in two flavors, those that earn points or credits immediately, and then those that instead earn points at the end of the game, often depending on the rooms found adjacent to them or found elsewhere within their station. After four rounds or years of construction, players will determine how many additional points they've earned from both their endgame card powers and from distributing a set of shared objectives in order to determine the winner. One thing I really love about this game is that it has such a strong spatial element. As I mentioned, cards often earn points based on the cards around them, so planning where to place future cards can be extremely helpful. In addition to these adjacency considerations, also you need to take into account that some types of room have to be powered, and in order to power a room it has to be close enough to a power reactor card. These reactors are placed with a number of translucent cubes on them to represent their capacity, and every time you use one to power a new card, a cube is removed from it to show that you're using up that supply. Once the cubes are gone, you're not going to be able to draw any more power from the reactor. So depending on what types of cards you're focused on, it can be important to pay attention and be discarding cards to build reactors before you run out. And you may find yourself focusing on a number of different things, as Among the Stars comes with one of my favorite ways to tweak the roles, variable player powers. Within the game are tiles that represent a number of alien races, each approaching the game in a different way. Now I've actually played both with and without using them, and I've found myself enjoying the game regardless of their inclusion, which definitely adds some additional flexibility. Without them, you have a super solid drafting game that could easily be used to introduce the concept of drafting to a player who's not looking for something too simple. When you add the player powers back in, you're giving that extra layer of strategy that shifts the balance a bit between the players and lets them enjoy breaking the rules as they take on the full game. I've talked before about liking getting to build something in a game, and watching everyone's space stations grow and spread across the table is a big part of the fun I get out of Among the Stars, especially as stories start to emerge as you see each installation adding to its unique flavor. The card art from Odysseus Stamaglau and Antonis Papantonio features wonderfully colorful detailed depictions of bustling areas full of inhabitants both familiar and alien, which helps add to the immersiveness of the game for me. However, I will admit that 
solid art aside, once you start looking at components, this is a very tough game to describe, due to a history of multiple Kickstarter campaigns, each full of extras and new pieces. Most notably, the terrible original score track has been replaced multiple times with easier to parse versions. In my copy, the cards and tiles are of decent quality, as is that score tracker board. Although the cardboard chits for tracking score aren't exciting, especially as opposed to my friend who has nice 3D plastic minis. The cardboard chits used for the credits are just fine, and the translucent cubes are very nice. Though I will point out I did replace my cardboard chits with metal space-themed coins because, well, because I really liked the game and wanted to upgrade it. Among the Stars is an easy enough game to teach and get going, but the wide variety of card types that may or may not come out make for a game that doesn't feel stale, even after playing multiple times in close succession. The variable player powers add to the variety, and if you were to get bored, there's plenty of expansions and promos out there to be found. The spatial aspect for me sets it apart from other games using the same type of mechanics, and actually this is the only pure drafting game that I still have. As you watch your space station grow and evolve throughout the game, you can find yourself encroaching on other players' space. And depending on how mean you want to play, you can play with the role that other players can physically block your expansion. Even without this role, the very nature of drafting involves keeping cards from others. And as each scoring objective can only be claimed by a single player, there's a need to pay attention to what everyone else is doing, keeping the game from feeling solitarish. It's definitely not a game you can take just anywhere due to the table-sprawling nature of the beast, but when you have the space, it's well worth playing, especially as the whole thing plays in just about an hour. I highly recommend checking it out, especially as a space-themed game set during the rebuilding that follows the brokering of peace rather than being about conflict. If you want to know more about this or other games I've been playing, you can find me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. On Tour is a roll-and-write game about taking your band on the road. What could be more fun than that? Okay, everyone who's ever been in a band can contact me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall, and let me know how unglamorous touring really is. I won't let reality intrude on how great this theme is for a game. The goal of On Tour is to draw the longest continuous path around the United States, giving your band the most successful tour. The path always has to go from lower to higher numbers, and you can't ever visit the same state twice. Players start the game with a dry erase marker and a map of the U.S., each turn, you draw three cards, which show regions of the country with a state circled. Then you roll two d10s. Say you roll a three and a seven. Every player has to write both 37 and 73, somewhere on their map. You can write them anywhere in the region shown on the cards, but if you write a number in the state shown on the card, you get to circle that number, and it's worth a bonus point at the end. These regions are big, a third to a half of the country, so you have a lot of options, at least at first. But as the game goes on and you fill in more states, your choices start to narrow. What I love about On Tour is the partial randomness. All states are printed on the cards, so you know you're going to see every single state at some point during the game. But the numbers come from random dice rolls. You may have a route that looks great, except for one number you really need but you just never get. Or worse, you do roll that number you really need, but the cards make you put it someplace you really don't want it to go. When the dice are not on your side, On Tour can be frustrating in a very fun way. Sometimes I start with the best of intentions, then end up making bad choices because that bonus point tempts me to write a number somewhere I know isn't good, but I tell myself I'll make it work. And maybe I do, or maybe I spectacularly don't. I just played a game where I had a really long, good route that circled the entire country, but had a gap right in the middle. On the final turn, the last dice roll, I needed a number between 52 and 60 to connect the two halves of my route. And we rolled 51. 
one number away from epic victory. I couldn't even be mad. It was just funny to imagine my band tootling around the country, state by state, them randomly getting stuck in Indiana and refusing to go any further. Sorry, Mountain and Pacific, maybe next time. On Tour is a game about keeping your options open. The best games I've had were the ones where I was able to draw a route that always connected, but had empty spaces along the way I could loop into if the dice rolls were there. When you inevitably end up with gaps in your route, there's a mechanism for filling them. If you roll doubles, or all three cards show the same region, instead of writing the usual two numbers, you can write one star, which counts as a wild. As the map starts to get tight, you're pretty much always going to have at least one bad spot where you really need a star to fix things. On Tour was designed by Chris Deshone and published in 2019 by Board Game Tables, who apparently make more than just tables. It was originally a Kickstarter, and now you can buy the game direct from the publisher's website. The component quality is outstanding, which makes sense knowing the game was produced by a custom furniture company, and I commend them for selling the exact same game now, high-end components and all, as they did during the Kickstarter campaign. No backer-only stretch goals here. Everything in the on-tour box looks great and feels nice in your hand. The dice are big and chunky, the cards are oversized, the dry erase markers come with individual erasers. The player mats are thick, glossy boards that when folded up look kind of like a menu from a really fancy restaurant. When open, they have gorgeous graphic art by Anka Gavril in four styles featuring different music genres, rock, country, hip-hop, and jazz. When I play on tour, I always take a jazz board and name my band after a real band. The best game I've ever had was with the Chick Webb Orchestra, and I loved imagining Webb and his band traveling the country as I drew my path around the map. Now I suppose, using dry erase player boards instead of paper and pencil limits how many people can play the game. The base game comes with four boards, and you can buy more from the publisher. The box holds up to 12. If the opportunity presented itself to play on tour with more than 12 people, there are paper maps on the publisher's website that you could print off. But if that happens to you often, then your game group is very different from mine. I borrowed a friend's copy of On Tour, and I think I would have bought the game if I didn't have access to it through that friend. But as it is, as much as I'm enjoying it, I'm not sure if I need my own copy. It's such a fun puzzle, but it is one puzzle. I'm not sure there's enough variability that I would want to play it all the time. On Tour feels like a game I'll enjoy a lot when I get to play my friend's copy, and you know, that's enough. It's a fun game that fills a niche, and it doesn't need to be more. And that's On Tour. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not on an award tour, going each and every place with a mic in my hand, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Hi, this is Meeple Lady, and today I'll be taking you to France, to a little harbor town called La Havre. This game is designed by Uwe Rosenberg, with art by Clemens Franz, and was published in 2008 by Z-Man. Uwe Rosenberg is one of my favorite game designers, and this game is my favorite one of his. I affectionately call it the hipster game. Ever since my brother-in-law pointed out that the guy, on the spine of the box, definitely looks like a dude who could be living in present day. He's got an old-timey hat, he's wearing a denim button-down, he has an anchor tattoo on his forearm, and a cigarette behind his ear. Chillin' like, he's way too cool for this game. And he has a beard. Anywho, I love this game because it's one of the few Uwe games that is equally punishing and interactive. This is not your typical solitaire Euro game that Uwe is mostly known for. In La Havre, players are fishermen collecting resources and francs, building boats, and feeding their workers at the end of the round, which as the game progresses, gets more expensive to do so. Players use little boat meeples to leapfrog their way down their harbor, and with each turn, two types of resources are replenished on the board. Then the player can either take all of the same resources at one location or use their discs to activate a building. 
With the leapfrogging mechanism, players won't always take the same number of turns during the round. Though, don't worry, everyone gets equal turns for the entire game when it's over. And that's one thing to look out for since you have to feed your people. And since resources only replenish two types at a time, timing is a big part of this game. The other large part of this game is the buildings. When you use your disc to activate a building, you can build by landing on a building firm or a construction firm, or use yours or another player's building that's already been built. Buildings have resource costs shown at the bottom of the card in order to build it, and they also sometimes have a cost to activate it, which is then paid to the owner of the building. You can use your building for free. Lastly, a player can also purchase a building straight up or sell his building for half price to get money. This is not a main action, but more often than not, it's an expensive and inefficient way to own a building as franks are victory points. Lahav, like any proper Eurogame, has a bunch of resources. In addition to franks, there's wood, fish, coal, clay, cattle, grains, and iron, which can all be upgraded into more valuable resources. There are so many resources in this game, and luckily the advanced goods are just on the backside of each chip. The majority of the buildings in this game are actions that will process these goods into more valuable goods. It's a good strategy to build buildings that other people will use, as they'll have to pay you to use it. It's also a good strategy to sit on a building that you know other folks will want to use just to block them. And this interactive gameplay is what sets this Uve game apart from the others. The two most sought out buildings are the wharf and shipping lane. Wharfs are valuable to build ships, which then provides you with a food discount at the end of the round when you need to feed your people. The shipping lane is also important because resources are worth absolutely nothing at the end of the game if you don't ship it. When you ship your resources, you'll need ships, which hold a specific amount of goods. You'll also need energy in the form of wood, coal, or any of those advanced resources, and you'll receive a number of francs printed on the chit when you ship it. Again, francs are VPs at the end of the game. If you are unable to feed your people at the end of the round, either with food or francs, you must take out loans and pay interest each round for your loans. You receive four francs for each loan, and you must pay five francs to repay them. For any unpaid loans at the end of the game, it'll cost you negative seven francs. And if there's a harvest at the end of the round, you get a cattle if you have at least one pair already, and some grain if you have grain in your supply. Sounds very familiar to other Uve games. Everything about this game is open knowledge. You can see which buildings are going to be available to build and how much food you'll need for each round. There's a lot of planning that needs to be done, or else you'll be unable to feed your people. Lahav is great at two, three, and even four player counts. I don't recommend playing this at five, as there's so much downtime until your next turn. Even the rulebook explicitly says, do not try 5P unless you all are experienced players. Plus with five players, you get so, so few turns that it never seems like you're accomplishing much. The game comes with rules on how to play a short scenario as well as long ones. Everything is clearly laid out to easily build a deck depending on which scenario you choose. There are no surprises. There's also a deck of special buildings, which a few come out at each game. The deck that comes in the box is very large, and even to this day, there's still a couple buildings that surprise me. I personally enjoy the longer scenarios of Lahav because I love the grind of the game. I love it when you finally have an engine working where you're collecting massive amounts of resources and no longer have to be worried about feeding your people. Then you can focus on upgrading your goods and acquiring steel so that you can buy that awesome luxury yacht at the end of the game. And that's Lahav. And this is Meeple Lady for the 5 by. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady or on my website, 
BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. Hi, everyone. It's Laura. Way back in 2018, Buttonshy published Brawlopolis, an 18-card city-building game designed by Stephen Aramini, Danny Devine, and Paul Kluka, with artwork by Danny Devine. I backed it on Kickstarter because the theme appealed to me, a co-op game where you get to be city planners designing a metropolis. Also, it supports one to four players, and any game with a solo mode is a huge plus for me. I figured it would be an easy and relaxing experience, just laying down some cards to build tiny cities from scratch. What I didn't realize is how much variability and depth an 18-card game can offer. To win Spirlopolis, you need to build a city that meets the challenging requirements of city officials. Each card is divided into four rectangular quadrants, representing city blocks, with exactly one block of each zone type. Industrial, residential, commercial, and park. Each card also has one or two roads that start and end on the edge of the card so you can connect them to roads on other cards. At the beginning of the game, you'll remove three cards from the deck and flip them over to reveal the requirements of city officials, aka scoring conditions. For example, Morning Commute gets you two points for each road that passes through both a residential block and a commercial block. The number 16 printed at the top of that card relates to the win condition. You add it to the values listed on the other two cards and the total is the minimum score you need to win. For example, if the three scoring condition cards had the values 1, 2, and 5, then my final score would have to be 8 or higher to win. There are also a couple of scoring conditions that apply to every game. For example, you lose one point for each road, so you want to connect them whenever possible. You also want to create a large cluster of each zone type to score additional points. The rulebook provides variants on these rules so you can adjust the game difficulty, which I always appreciate. So enough about scoring, let's talk about actual gameplay. On your turn, you choose one card from the three in your hand to play. If it's not a solo game, you hand the remaining two cards to the next player and draw a card for your next turn. If that all sounds easy, let me add one more thing. You don't just place cards next to each other, you can overlap one or more city blocks with a new card, and that increases possible plays exponentially. A typical turn goes like this. You stare at the three cards in your hand trying to figure out which one to play, then stare at the cards already played, then stare at the three scoring conditions. Repeat that process in any order about, oh, five to 47 times. Maybe it's closer to the beginning of the game and two of the scoring conditions have to do with what's placed at the edge of the city, but you're not sure if any of the cards on the table will or should form one of the edges. You're about to put down a card, then realize the roads won't match up how you need them to, so you'll have to overlap a couple of existing blocks to make them line up. But then that would cut your largest industrial area in half. You're also acutely aware that time is ticking away, and so you decide to go for it and hope that it all works out in the end. Some of the best moments in Sprawlopolis happen when you think there's no good move to make. You're fiddling with your cards, apologizing to your teammates, when suddenly a light bulb goes off in your head. If you take this card here and overlap it there, you've just turned two roads into one and increased the size of your largest residential area and nabbed two points for one of the scoring conditions. Not only is it incredibly satisfying when this happens, but you feel smart. And I love games that make me feel smart. It's also incredibly satisfying to create or co-create a city from scratch. If you're a fan of Carcassonne or other games with a map building mechanic, Sprawlopolis gives you that same feeling in 15 to 20 minutes, unless things are going terribly wrong, and you can only shake your head at the Frankenstein of a city you've just created. It can go either way. 
I reach for Sproopolis when I only have time for a filler but want a puzzly game that will give my brain a solid workout. It works great solo or co-op. In fact, it's my most played solo game over the past six months. And if you tend to avoid co-op games due to the potential for quarterbacking, the rules help prevent this by not allowing players to show their hands. Plus, you have one card that's known only to you, the one you drew after your last turn, and this information prevents other players from insisting they know the quote-unquote right move to make. In terms of component quality, the cards have a nice linen finish, and the simple art style makes the game visually appealing without pulling focus from the core puzzle. Sprawlopolis costs about $12, US which I consider a deal for a great game you can get lots of plays out of, and that's small enough to fit in your back pocket. It also has several expansions available, which run around $4 each. I got a few mini expansions with the Kickstarter version I backed, which you can still get on Buttonshy's website, but even after a lot of plays, I haven't felt the need to add any of them in yet. This speaks to how much game is packed into the 18 core cards. The last thing I'll mention is that there's a free score tracker app for Sprolopolis available on iOS and Android. You don't need it, but it's a huge plus for me because I tend to avoid games that save up all the scoring for the end. To me, it kind of feels like when you were a kid on summer vacation and you asked one of your parents to take you out for ice cream, and they said they would if you cleaned your room when you got back. But obviously, that's just my hang-up. I know most people wouldn't give it a second thought. But if you're like me, mildly allergic to endgame tallying, the app makes it easier and quicker. And that's all I got. I'm Laura Donovan Bannister, and you can find me on Twitter at LauraWroteIt. P.S. If you want a good tongue twister, say Sprawlopolis five times fast. Or even just once. I could barely get through this segment without messing it up every single time. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about The River. I don't often talk about what I would consider to be divisive board games. My focus in general tends to be on things you've never heard of, or things fairly universally recognized as mostly being pretty good that you might have forgotten about. In part, this is because I don't have much interest in dedicating the time and emotional energy to discussing games that I don't like. But The River is a game that I like, but that a number of other people seem to dislike. And dependent on your lens of play, the number of games you own, and what you're looking for in a light worker placement game, I can kind of see where the River's detractors are coming from. Designed by Sebastian Pachon and Ismail Perrin and released in 2018, the River is a relatively simple, light worker placement game with an only minorly colonialist land acquisition theme. Players are some sort of pioneers or something and have come to a beautiful, unpopulated, and unspoiled valley, so of course the game is about taking a bunch of resources, building a bunch of stuff there, and controlling as much of the new land as possible. Like most other straightforward worker placement games, in the river, you have some people, and on your turn, you place one of them on a central board, take an action, and then get rewarded in some way for that action. There's a standard set of wood, stone, brick, and food resources that you're collecting in order to build buildings on later turns to, of course, get points. You take tiles to add to your river board, and those tiles are both what determines the stuff that you get, and how much space you have to store the stuff after you've gotten it. The tiles also generate points, either in and of themselves, or through having certain other tiles or resources that score at endgame. There aren't a set number of rounds, so that endgame is driven by the number of tiles you've completed or the number of buildings you built, similar to a game like San Juan. This is a race game, make no mistake. Without question, there is nothing new or particularly innovative about the river. If what you're looking for is the next great leap forward in worker placement games, this is not for you. Like a lot of what are referred to as family weight games that I love, The River, while not groundbreaking, is a very clean distillation of a bunch of stuff I like from other games racked up into a friendly and accessible package. This one is absolutely on our list of weeknight games. That is, games that we can come home after work, set up quickly, play twice in a row after dinner, and still have time to catch an episode of Diagnosis Murder before bed. Most of the criticisms you hear about The River are that it's boring, there's too much downtime, it's too random, and there's no planning ahead. 
And I have to tell you that every single one of those things is true at three and four players. We learned this last BGG con from our friend Aussie Daniel, and the three-player experience was what I would call capital F fine. So why was it just fine? Mostly because at three players, it felt very loose. The board is open, there are a lot of resources and tiles available, and multiple people can take the same actions each round. But in our subsequent two-player plays, we have been constantly in each other's way and constantly at each other's throats. If you're any good at all, you'll make sure and take actions that you know your opponent desperately needs, even if you don't exactly need the resources. The two-player game for us, as relatively experienced board gamers who love worker placement titles, typically clocks in at around 30 minutes, sometimes less if Megan has rushed to the end game, which she usually does. We've played the river, oh, around a dozen times, and we seem to be pretty evenly matched. That's not to say that the scores are close every time, or even that it plays out the same. There's plenty of variance to be had here. A different mix of tiles, along with a limited number of buildings available each game, means that we can play two games back to back and have our boards look totally different every time we finish. The box, of course, is dumb. The game, in general, is overproduced and oversized for what it is, honestly, but, you know, people just won't buy a medium rectangle box family games that are two-player only. They just won't. They, they, they really genuinely will not. So, the three to four player game is a little loose, there's a little more stuff in the box than is probably necessary, and the insert is very nice, but definitely overkill. And the main board is pretty, but unnecessarily large, and the whole thing cost around $35 online, and full retail is about $40. This surely could have been sized and developed as a two-player title and fit in a patchwork size box and retail at $25. But that's not what Days of Wonder does. They do big productions with fancy bits and lots of art. The art, by the way, is perfectly fine. I like Andrew Bosley's work in general, though I just can't unsee the comical size mismatch for the woman holding the pickaxe on the box cover. Take a second look at it. The head of the pickaxe is longer than her torso. You couldn't lift a hunk of steel that size on your shoulder, much less swing it to break rocks. Petty, I realize, but it bugs me anyway. So who should buy The River? People who want a short, light worker placement game optimized for two. People who want a highly replayable resource race. People who like to pull out and play games without having to relearn the rules every time. And people who don't mind spending real money in shelf space on a fun and well-developed title that doesn't dazzle. I give The River 4 out of 5 turkey meeples, which I forgot to mention earlier because the draw to this one for a lot of people was the wooden turkeys. I'm Mason Weaver, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Discount Compost. Thank you for listening to The 5 by If you'd like to follow us, please do so on Twitter at 5 by Games. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 games. Join our BGG Guild, number 2810, and listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or just follow all the links at 5bygames.com. Thanks for listening. The 5 By is part of the Inside Voices Network. Find more of our great content, like Great Way Games, at insidevoicesnetwork.com.